Hello. Good evening. Um, like Brittany said, my name is Daniel. I am her husband. Um, she's my wife, is what that means. Um, so, because we're one flesh, if you've gotten to know her, you know me. So, don't talk to me. Just kidding. Um, yeah, so I'm so excited to be here with y'all. Ben couldn't be here today. He's doing Ben stuff. Um, so what that means is that you guys are subjected to hear, hearing me uh, talk about John chapter 11. I know y'all have been going through the book of Matthew, if I'm not mistaken, um, talking about this thing called the upside down kingdom. So I'm not really going to take a deviation from the upside down kingdom. It's more of a tangent. It's still related, um, but a little bit of a different focus. But uh, before we go into the scripture, before we, we dive into the scriptures, I want you all to take a moment to just get in the mindset that the stories that you read in the Bible aren't just stories. I want you all to take a moment to get in the mindset that these aren't just fairy tales that we hear, that they're not just uh, morality tales that help us be better people. Because sometimes if you've grown up in or around the church or if you've heard these stories, it's easy to miss out on what the text is actually saying because... We're so used to just reading these over and over and over and over, which means that I'm going to be speaking from a passage that's pretty well known. Um, it's the, the passage that deals with the resurrection of this guy named Lazarus. If you don't know what I'm talking about, if you've never heard any of the words that I've just said, um, you're actually probably better off. If you do know what I'm talking about, just bear with me as we try to deconstruct this passage. Um, just complete honesty, I went through this whole thing in my office two times, and I timed myself. The first time, it was 20 minutes. The second time, it was 40 minutes. So hopefully, we'll be right in the middle. Um, and if not, then you don't have to see me again. All right, so John chapter 11, if you're reading from your Bible, it might be a little confusing. Uh, your eyes might have to play leapfrog a little bit because I will be skipping, uh, skipping around. Um, so John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, if you're in your Bible, skip down to verse 18. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Um, and just to explain some of the cultural dynamics of the time, it was just like an understood thing that if you were a first century Jew, you hired people to mourn your loved one's funerals. It was this weird cultural quirk where basically um, you literally paid someone money so they could come to your private funeral and cry. Um, which that means that that was people's jobs, which is the most depressing job that I can think of. But whatever pays the bills. Um, so that's why there's a bunch of just randos at Mary and Martha's house, because they paid them to be there. They bought their friends. Uh, verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
But I know that even now God will give you back or give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Now skip to verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind uh, have, kept, have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Uh, just another cultural kind of explanation. The um, first century Jews believed that your soul hovered around your body for three days, and then on the fourth day, when your body started decomposing, your soul no longer recognized the body, so it just went away. So basically, uh, what Martha is saying is, his soul is gone, there's nothing you can do about it. And Jesus is like, dang, that's stupid. Um, <laughs> Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing there, that they may believe that you sent me. Then he said this, or when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I'm going to pray for us real quick. Father, you are good. Help us see today that you're good, that you're worth it, that you're worth following. Help us see today what it is that you're trying to show us in your word. I'm so thankful for this word that you have given to us um, through the centuries where we can read and meet you and, and get to know who you are. Um, so I pray for humble hearts and minds as we try to figure out this passage together. I pray that anything that we learn today wouldn't serve to make us feel prideful that we know so much. Um, but that it would serve for us to be able to see how great and how wonderful you are and how you are so worth following. I also pray along those lines that if I say anything that isn't in accordance with your word, that if anything comes out of, your, out of my mouth that could lead our UF astray, that it would fall on deaf ears. That anything that is not truthful would fall on deaf ears. Anything that is truthful and that comes from you, that it would be received by open hearts and open minds. In your son's name I pray. Amen. So I'm going to open with a story. Um, this story actually is pretty recent. So on April 27, 2017, or sorry, April 27, 2016, um, I was sitting in my house in Atlanta, so in my parents' house in Atlanta, and I was watching YouTube videos because that's what you do when you have no friends to call you. Um, just kidding. I have friends. <laughs> um, so I was sitting in my house watching YouTube videos, just chilling. It was like 11-ish p.m. when suddenly I got a phone call from a friend of mine. So I do have friends. Um, 
I got a phone call from a friend of mine, and it was one of those things where you kind of assume, okay, it's 11 p.m., they don't live in the same city as me, so either this is like something really stupid or it's something really serious, right? Either they're going to tell me some stupid like poop joke or something really serious happened. Um, so I picked up the phone, and you know, I didn't know which one I was going to get, but I noticed as he was talking to me that his voice was kind of quivering, kind of trembling, kind of somber. And he told me that in uh, just outside, a few hours ago, just outside the city where Brittany and I actually had gone to college, there, there had been this terrible car accident. Um, he told me that the car accident um, involved obviously two cars. One of them was a nurse, and one of them had five, yeah, five college students in it. Um, four college sophomores, one college senior. Um, they were all girls. He told me that three of the college sophomores had passed away on the spot, that one of them was in the hospital in uh, just critical condition, and that the college senior um, was in a coma, and she was also in critical condition. She had suffered some brain injuries. Um, and he told me their names, and I didn't recognize the names of the four sophomores, but I knew the name of the senior very well. Um, Agnes Kim, one of my best friends during college, uh, someone that I shared so many fond memories with of just being stupid, being silly. Uh, she dated my best friend, um, and then we made fun of him for it. And, you know, it's one of these people that has been so intertwined in your life that just the thought of them being hurt hurts. And just the thought of them being close to death hurts even more. So the next morning, I woke up super early, and I drove up to Athens, Georgia. It's about an hour and a half drive from Atlanta to Athens. And the whole time, I was thinking to myself, I don't know. I was thinking to myself, I have no idea what the outcome of this could be. But I could only imagine the worst. I was faced with this great tragedy, and my heart was darkened, and I could only imagine the worst, to the point where when I finally got to the hospital and I went to talk to the receptionist, I literally couldn't say her name because I couldn't believe that this was happening. She asked me what I was doing there, and I couldn't utter the name Agnes Kim because I was so distraught and so troubled that I couldn't believe, because I, did, I couldn't believe that it was happening. Um, and... After that, I heard the news that she was still in a coma. Um, she was stable now. She still had suffered some tremendous brain injuries. She was stable, but there was no... The doctors had no idea what the next few steps were going to be. Uh, and I also heard, unfortunately, that the other girl who was in the hospital had passed away that night. I tell you this story not to bring a complete downer on the room, even though that's exactly what just happened. But I tell you this story because I want to give you a framework for what the people were thinking when John 11 happened. I don't want us to skip to the very end right now. I want us to rest in this tragedy. I want us to rest in the misery of a loved one dying. Because I feel like if, if we don't understand the weight of the tragedy... My fear is that you'll walk away from this passage thinking, oh, look at that cool magic trick Jesus did. My fear is that if you don't understand the context of this great tragedy, you're going to walk away from this passage thinking, oh, Jesus is the God who makes bad things go away. Well, if Jesus is simply the one who does cool magic tricks, he's not God. He's not worth following. He's David Blaine. 
If Jesus is the God who makes bad things go away, then again, he's not God, he's not worth following, he's genie from Aladdin. They're both entertaining, they're not God. So I want us to rest in this tragedy because I know for a fact that every single one of us here has undergone tragedy. The world is broken, the world is fallen, and we face tragedy head on, and what do we do? And that's what I want to talk about today. Where is Jesus in the midst of this tragedy? Where was Jesus when fill in the blank? Where was Jesus when my loved one died? Where was Jesus when my parents split up? Where was Jesus when this terrible thing happened that's so shameful that I haven't ever told anyone about it? Where was Jesus when all this happened? So what is a tragedy? We understand biblically that a tragedy is when something happens that shouldn't have happened. Something terrible happens that shouldn't have happened. Right? A tragedy is a friend dying too young. It's a car full of college sophomores passing away. Uh, it's uh, A tragedy is a marriage uh, splitting up, falling apart. A tragedy is our own personal world rupturing, bursting at the seams. A tragedy leaves us asking, I don't know what the other end of this tragedy is going to look like. A tragedy leaves us thinking that we're unable to do anything to make our world the same as it was before it happened. Lazarus' death was a tragedy. We're told in the text that Lazarus was Jesus' close friend, and we know this, A, because it tells us he's your friend and you loved him. Um, But also, if you notice, verse 35, it says that Jesus wept. So, you know, kind of famously known for being the shortest passage or the shortest verse in Scripture. Um, When Jesus is taken before Lazarus' tomb, he weeps. There's this uh, theologian whose name is D.A. Carson, and he says that a better translation of Jesus wept is Jesus lamented loudly in the wake of great calamity. So to put that in layman's terms, Jesus ugly cried. (laughs) Okay, so there's a difference between just crying and ugly crying. Obviously, like crying is like one tear and it's like noble. And ugly cry is like when your face is all red and like you have snot and like everyone wants to get away from you. That's, That's our Lord and Savior. He's ugly crying. We have the God of the universe ugly crying. Why? Because this Jesus who is seeing the death of his friend is the very same Jesus who, according to John chapter 1 verse 3, was the agent of creation. He's the very same Jesus who was there when God said, let it be, and everything was. That same Jesus who was the agent of creation is now witnessing his perfect, beautiful creation being intruded upon by tragedy, the world being undone. And Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps because he sees the hearts of the people who are witnessing this tragedy, and they're despairing. They're hopeless. That's why Jesus weeps. So let's pause there, because let's, I would hate to miss the implication of, of Jesus weeping. Right? Jesus weeping means that tragedy matters, that tragedy is a big deal. Something like death is a huge deal, even to the God of the universe. He weeps, Jesus weeps because his heart is broken. He does not weep because he's disheartened. Does that make sense, that that difference? He weeps because his heart is broken. He doesn't weep because he's disheartened. Jesus is sorrowful, but he does not despair. 
He's sorrowful, but he does not despair. And and, in cases like these, in moments where we face tragedy, it's so tempting to despair, to fall into despair. So what's the difference uh, between sorrow and despair? Sorrow says things are not the way they're supposed to be. Despair takes that one step further and says, and there's absolutely nothing that can be done about it. Jesus is sorrowful because he sees that things are not the way they're supposed to be. He doesn't despair because he knows the end of the story. Okay, so that's great and all. You know, Jesus weeps. He's crying. He's ugly crying. He's making himself look like a fool in front of all these people. Is that enough? Shouldn't we still be a little mad? Don't we have a lot to be a little angry that the God of the universe is sitting here crying? But the text tells us that when he heard the news of Lazarus' sickness, he waited two days before he did anything. Does that, I mean, there's a disconnect here, isn't there? Right? Verse 6 of of John chapter 11 says that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he didn't rush like a good friend, like one of us would have done, you know, to to his good friend and put everything down and, and just go. He waited two days and then he was on his way. And so by the time he finally got to Bethany, Lazarus was already dead. There is debate among scholars whether or not that two-day period was enough time for Lazarus to die. But the fact of the matter is that he didn't go right away. And so in my heart, when I see something like this and when I compare it to the tragedy of my friend Agnes, I think to myself, I don't think to myself, oh, Jesus is so nice for weeping. I think to myself, how dare God weep? He could have prevented this. He could have made this not happen. How dare you weep? Three times the people around Jesus, Mary, Martha, and these rando Jewish people, uh, three times they said, if only you had been here. Does this ring true to you? If only you had been here, Jesus, this wouldn't have happened. Where were you? Where was Jesus when this car accident killed four girls? Where was Jesus when all the things that you've built for yourself, all the, all the small kingdoms that you build for yourself come, uh, come crumbling down, couldn't find the word? Where was Jesus? I don't necessarily have a concrete answer as to why tragedy happens. But I want you to notice what Jesus says in verse 4. He says, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. When I was finally able to visit Agnes's hospital room, there was a poster that some of her friends had made, and the poster had a quote on it, and it just said, But even if not... But even if not, that quote comes from Daniel chapter 3. Um, and Daniel chapter 3 tells a story of three guys. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, you probably should not name your kids that. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were three Jewish men during this time called the Babylonian captivity. Basically, this big old kingdom uh, called the kingdom of Babylon had come into Israel. And they had ransacked everything. They had destroyed everything. They had killed a third of the population. And they took a third of the population of Israel. And they set them into exile in Babylon. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are three of the millions of people who are in exile in Babylon. 
And Babylon is ruled by this guy named Nebuchadnezzar. And again, don't name your kids this. Um, and Nebuchadnezzar said, I have an idea. I'm going to make these big old statues like the Oscar statues, but like bigger, right? Effigies of myself. And when my people play the trumpets, and yeah, this was a world where people just play the trumpets. Um, when my people play the trumpet, everyone is going to bow down and worship me like a god. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, nah. <laughs> they said, we're not going to do that. We worship the one true God. So Nebuchadnezzar has these guys captured. They're brought before him, and, they say, or, and he says to them, all right, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you don't worship me, if you don't bow down before me like I'm your God, then I'm going to throw you in this casual furnace that I have right here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are like, swerve, we only, we only worship the one true God. And then they said to him, listen to this, they say, they say to him, as he's threatening them, or as he's threatening to throw them in this furnace that he just has laying around for whatever reason, he said, they say to him, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will, not share, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Do you understand the radical nature of what they're saying here? They're saying, we know that God can, can rescue us from this. We know he's powerful and good enough to rescue us from this. But even if he doesn't, we still only serve him. We still only recognize that he is good, worth worshiping. God can prevent tragedy, but even when he doesn't, he is still good. He is still worth worshiping. These three guys had no room for despair because they knew that God was good. That, to me, does not seem like a satisfying attitude. Because when tragedy strikes, what I want, what my sinful heart wants, is to be angry, to lash out, to be indignant, to say, why did this happen to me? What did I do for this to happen to me? Notice that in verse 14, Jesus tells his disciples, Lazarus is dead. And that's not going to be on, on your sheets because I took it out because it was way too long. But now I'm reading it anyway. Uh, verse 14, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. He's saying that he's glad the tragedy happened and that he wasn't there to prevent it so that they may believe. So that they may see God and think to themselves, wow, God's better. God's worth worshiping. And this statement and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's attitudes don't make sense unless we know the end of the story. You see, the end of the story is what lets us know that Jesus is not David Blaine. The end of the story is what lets us know that Jesus is not the genie from Aladdin. He's not some street magician who's trying to impress us with these cool tricks. He's not some supernatural being who's only here to save us from tragedy and discomfort. Instead, what John 11 illustrates to us is the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the gospel is radical, and I want you to hear me when I say this. The truth of the gospel is this. Jesus did not come to 
prevent bad things from happening. Jesus came to bring dead people back to life. Do you understand this? Jesus did not come to prevent bad things from happening. He came to raise dead people back to life. The peculiarity of the story is that when Jesus hears about Lazarus' sickness, he waits two days, he, he proclaims the sickness does not lead to death, and then Lazarus dies. And then, when Jesus gets to Bethany, he's bombarded with these questions. Where were you? Could you not have prevented this? If you were only here, this wouldn't have happened. Could it be that Jesus waited two days so that people would ask him, where were you? Could it be that Jesus took his sweet time so that people would feel the brunt of the tragedy? So that they would ask him, where were you? Because he has a really good answer for that. Could it be that he wants us to ask, where were you? So that we may see not where he was, but where he is. Could it be that when we ask, where were you? What we really mean is, where were your magic tricks? Where were the tricks that you were going to use to pull us out of this? Could it be that Jesus knows our hearts? And when we ask him, where were your magic tricks? What he has to say to us is, here I am. The Gospel of John is full of these things called I am statements. Jesus says, I am the truth, I am the way, I am the life, I am the resurrection, I am the living water, I am the bread of life, I am the gate. He says, I am all the time because he knows that our hearts are conditioned to ask Jesus, Jesus, can you show me the way? And he says, actually, I'm the way. Jesus, could you show me, could you point me to resurrection? And he says, I'm the resurrection. Jesus, could you show me where life is? I'm life. Jesus, can you show me where this water is that will never let me thirst? That's me. I'm the living water. Could it be that sometimes Jesus waits so that we can ask where he was, so that we can see where he is? Jesus didn't come to, pre- to prevent bad things from happening. He came to bring dead people back to life. And so if we know that at the other end of this tragedy, there's resurrection, we're able to face the tragedy well, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're able to say, but even if not, we're able to say, I know that God is powerful, sovereign enough to take this bad thing away from me. From me. But even if he doesn't, he's still good. Because at the other end of this tragedy, there's a resurrection. See, for the people who were asking Jesus these questions, this wasn't an issue that they didn't have the proper knowledge or the proper theology. If you notice Jesus' interaction with Martha, uh, she kind of, you know, would get a good grade in a theology paper. She says... uh, What does she say? I know that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. She's a devout Jew. She knows her stuff. This isn't a matter of having a deficient amount of theology or theological frameworks. This is a matter of not realizing at the end of the story is resurrection. How much do we wish that these bad things that happened to us hadn't happened to us? How much do we wish that our brother or sister was still okay? How much do we wish that that one friend, that you know something happened to them, something shameful, something that 
change them forever. How much do we wish that hadn't happened? Tragedy cannot be done away with pithy statements or, or Christian lingo or, or Christian platitudes. It can't be done away with something that we would get out of a Hallmark card. Simply saying everything happens for a reason doesn't mean that it hurts less when bad things happen. Just a quick illustration, um, and hopefully y'all are Lord of the Rings people. Um, in, in Fellowship of the Ring, Gandalf dies. He falls off a bridge. If you haven't seen the movie or read the book, uh, sorry, Gandalf dies. Um, and just like to, to explain who Gandalf is, Gandalf is like your favorite grandfather mixed with like your favorite theologian uh, with fireworks. Um, just like this awesome mentor. So Gandalf dies fighting this like crazy fire demon called the Balrog of, of uh, Morgoth. Um, and every time I watch that, it's the saddest thing in the world. Because every time they cut to Frodo's face, and he looks like this puppy who has just had like, like his treats taken away from him or something. He's just like the saddest little face that I want to like take Elijah Wood and like nuss like. Just want to, I don't know. Which is silly because I've seen the two towers, I've read the two towers. I know that Gandalf comes back. Right? I know that the end of the story is that Gandalf comes back, but that doesn't mean that it's any less sad when he dies in the, in the mines of Moria. It doesn't mean that I, I still don't like feel this like internal tug where I'm like about to cry, you know, maybe. Um, even though I know that he comes back in the two towers, it still sucks. That's kind of what tragedy is. Tragedy still sucks, but there's a difference between sorrow and despair. Sorrow tells us this sucks. Despair tells us, and it's not going to get better. And also, there's nothing good at, at the end of this. There's no hope for this. The situation that you're living in right now, this is actually as good as it gets. It's going to get worse. That's despair. There's no room for hope in that. I don't know what Agnes's earthly story will end up looking like. I don't know if she'll ever be the exact same person she was before. I don't know if she'll be able to walk again without assistance. Currently, she needs people to help her walk. I don't know if she'll be able to communicate again the way she communicated before. I don't know if she'll be able to joke around again. I don't know if she'll be the same Agnes that I knew before the accident. And she doesn't either. In her own words, she feels like a low life because every time she has to use the restroom, someone has to help her. Someone has to take her. I don't know what the end of that story looks like, but I know that Agnes doesn't despair because she knows the end of the story. If you talk to her, she, you know, there's things that she's sad about, but she doesn't despair because she knows the end of the story is resurrection. She knows that. She sees it. We've seen it through this story. When I arrived in Athens that Thursday morning, the city was, was rife with the stench of death. You could just, it was palpable. But then something happened. God moved. And people started gathering to pray by the hundreds. And as they gathered together to heal together, they started hearing the stories of these girls. They started hearing the stories of Kayla Canedo, Brittany Feldman, Christina Samaria, Hallie Scott, and Agnes Kim. 
And as they started hearing these stories, they started hearing about the God that these girls lived for. And they started coming face to face with this God. And they started meeting him for the first time. And all of a sudden, dozens of people who were once spiritually dead were now alive. All of a sudden, this tragedy, this situation that was steeped in death had life. When I arrived in Athens, the city was heavy with the stench of death. When I left, it was laden with the aroma of resurrection. So we're left with a couple of takeaways. The first one is clear. In the face of tragedy, we're not allowed to think that God is an uncaring God, that God isn't invested, that he doesn't have skin in the game. We're not allowed to think that. Why? Because Jesus weeps. He weeps for the tragedy. He weeps in the midst of the tragedy. He weeps because of his uh, understanding that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. He weeps because he understands that people are so fallen that they fall into despair. They can't see the hope that lies beyond the tragedy. This is our Jesus, a Jesus who weeps with us in our tragedies. But it doesn't end there, right? Because if God is simply a God who weeps with us, then that God is no better than Dr. Phil. But our God is a God who offers resurrection. We're not able to despair, or we're able to not despair, because we know what the end of the story looks like. And this, I want to paint a clear picture of what the end of the story looks like if you are in Christ. The end of the story does not look like darkness. It looks like Jesus standing at the mouth of the grave, calling you by name, calling dead people by name, saying, come out, undo your grave clothes, you're free. That's the end of the story for us. Our Savior standing at the mouth of the grave, calling us by name, calling dead people by name, saying, come out, live, take off your grave clothes, be free. This is the point of the gospel. The gospel is not a crutch. The gospel is a defibrillator. Jesus doesn't help us walk. Jesus makes us alive. One last illustration, one last story. In 1871, there was this great fire in the city of Chicago. Um, This fire that destroyed just a ton of property. Countless buildings were burned to the ground. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed or were left homeless. And one of the people who was greatly affected by this fire, his name was Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a successful lawyer in the city of Chicago. And when these fires happened, his law firm burned down, his home burned down. And even more tragically, his son was killed in the fire. Two years later, in 1873, um, Horatio Spafford's wife and four daughters left to go on a transatlantic voyage to the UK, to England. Um, And Horatio was left in Chicago. He was helping rebuild the city. And not, not long after they left, he received a telegram from his wife And the telegram said that um, the boat that they were on had had sunk and that his wife was the sole survivor of the accident. In the course of two years, Horatio Spafford lost his home, his livelihood, and his five children. 
He lost everything. But Horatio Spafford's response to this tragedy was unusual. Because you see, Spafford understood the end of the story. He was able to face this tragedy with the gospel in mind. And so instead of just being angry, lashing out at God, in 1876, Horatio Spafford wrote a song. And the first verse of this song goes like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. In the face of tragedy, in the face of calamity, we need you. We are nothing without you. I pray that you help us see this today. I pray that your word helps illuminate to us how needy we are, how great you are. I pray that when we face things that don't make sense, insurmountable odds, tragedies, great loss, we can look at the end of the story, we can look at the resurrection and understand that you are good. I pray that you'll remind us day after day that you are good, that you're worth following. In your name I pray. Amen.